been an odd week for news with fits and starts this week, although today is going to be a big news day. News is what we talk about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. Good Thursday morning. Morning. Good, Good morning. morning. Almost that Friday spirit. Almost. You're getting there. <laughs> Let's get going. Even though the school funding formula for Ohio has been unconstitutional for 23 years, why does it appear the latest push to fix that in the legislature will fail? Jane Cahoon, we had a great story that laid this out that published yesterday. I think it's in the Plain Dealer today, but it's very sad. Yes, it's very sad because it doesn't look like this thing is going to make it out of lame duck, at least if, you know, what a couple of other um, a couple of senators say uh, holds true. The um, the Senate is basically, first of all, this thing unanimously passed a House committee on Wednesday and it's going to the floor today and it has strong bipartisan support, this fix. But some senators are saying they just don't have enough time to vet this in the in the lame duck. So any bill that doesn't get passed before the General Assembly wraps up its session uh, by the end of the year is going to die. Now, it could be reintroduced uh, in the next session. That begins in January, and I expect that will happen if it doesn't pass this time. But Although as you the know, author of it is leaving office, so the chief sponsor, right? right? The right. This is a this latest thing is an effort by John Patterson, who a Democrat who's term limited, and Bob Cup, the Speaker of the House. So it's got some uh, heft, you know, behind it. And these guys have been working for the last several years on a fix. I mean, they say what we have now is such a mess. It's not even a a formula. And we, I mean, this has been talked about endlessly in Ohio, how the current scheme relies too much on property taxes and puts too big of a burden on on local districts to to raise money. And this bill attempts to address that problem and, and to really dig in and determine what it costs to educate a child and what, what districts need. Uh, and, and it also would uh, direct money directly to the charter schools instead of making the local districts, um, you know, taking it out of their allocations. So, but uh, Senator Matt Dolan, who who chairs the finance committee, said on Wednesday that, you know, th- these years of work that's been spent on this bill, it just can't be vetted in a matter of the weeks that they, they have left. And he really thinks it should be part of the state budget that they approved next year and and says he just can't see it being approved outside of of that process. And then there's also the cost factor, you know, to fully implement this, it's going to cost 1.9 billion a year. Um, although the bill is designed so it kind of steps that in. It takes six years for the full funding to kick in. Um, anyway, it's it's a complex bill, but it does it's it feels like the first real effort that would that would address this this problem. And uh, as you said, sadly, it, it doesn't look like we're going to see it pass. In yeah. The lane. yeah, Matt Dolan should be ashamed of himself saying, yeah, it's going to take a lot of work. We don't have time. That's what you're there for. Do the damn work. I mean, th- th- what's sad is this has been there for, like you said, they've been working on this for years. It's not like they just discovered this and said, oh, we have a couple of weeks. This has been out there. This has been talked about. They've done hard work to finally fix what's been broken for decades. And I I just, it was such a disappointment because 
as this has been moving through, I thought, wow, they, they finally have done. It's never, it's not perfect. Nothing ever will right. be, but it's a lot more fair and a lot more thoughtful. They really have done the heavy lifting. And now the guys in the center saying, yeah, we, we're not going to have time. And I, I, you know, you, you are confident it'll come back, but we've seen things like this in the past. The session ends and then you wonder, where is it? What's going to happen next? We can end up with nothing for, for another two years. And Cup does have power. He's going to be the speaker again, right? We've reported that. Correct. He, um, yeah, he's been So he could pick up his hammer and force it through. But I, I just, I was sad because Matt Dolan's a, a local guy. He's pretty well regarded. He's done a couple of stupid things. But for him to be the chief obstacle now saying, yeah, I don't think we can do it. Like, buckle down and get it done. For God's sake, that's what you're there for. And it's the lame duck when you can get things done. So sad story. Good piece. It's in uh, The Plain Dealer today and online at cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The RTA waterfront line has struggled since it opened 20 years ago or almost 25 years ago, I guess. So why does a transit group want to extend it into downtown or along Lake Erie? Chris Ranowski, they actually put like uh, phony images of people in the windows of this thing at one point (laughs) to make it look like it had people in it. It was it opened with great fanfare during the administration of Mayor Michael R. White. The thought was it would generate all sorts of extra economic development and it and it really hasn't there's hardly anybody in it they actually they had to do some rehab work they shut it down and they didn't even need buses to to keep the traffic going because there isn't any so why would you expand it right so a uh, a transit advocacy group known as all aboard ohio has asked the rta to study the future of the waterfront line which includes the possibility of extending it. I mean, I think asking RTA to study it might actually say, "Hey, we don't we don't need this." But but one of the things that they're 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 suggesting is that they extend it into a loop around downtown Cleveland, which apparently, which I didn't know this, was part of an original plan for that line, which they ended up they ended up sort of amending the plans for it likely for financial reasons to to make it go basically just to where the muni lot is now the thought being that if you extend it around downtown it will actually make that line a little more useful it's right now the it's it's about 2.2 miles and it opened in, in 1996 and it was a 69 million dollar extension of the green and blue rapid transit lines but as you as you said it has suffered from chronically low ridership i i I've never been on it. I, and I like, if you're ever down there, you rarely see a person on it. And, and, and you're right. In late October, they shut it down and they basically just said, we don't need buses to replace it. And all aboard Ohio said they prefer the line to be extended into downtown loop and into the downtown loop. So it can extend east along uh, the Lake Erie shore. And, 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 and the thought being that that would help sort of boost that that ridership and stimulate economic development, which sounds familiar because that's what the line was put there for to begin with. But, you know, maintaining the line has had a limited value beyond, you know, crowds for special events along that part of the waterfront and, and getting people down to the, the Muni lot and to Browns games. But, but even then most people drive and park and walk. So, so, you know, this is, I mean, what they're asking for basically is is some additional studying to see if it's feasible and and, and viable. And, you know, maybe we'll be surprised by the the results of uh, such a study. 
So, you know, it's it's one of those wait and see things that we talk about a lot in development. Laura Johnston of Rock the Lake is on. <laughs> Laura Johnston, that sounds like a double-edged sword. Running a rail line down along the lakefront, yeah, it might provide more access, but do we really need another barrier between people and the lakefront? I mean, a railroad line, if you look at any of the RTA tracks, it's not it's not a convenient thing to cross. It's pretty forbidding. Well, these are, I mean, I don't know that this would look like the giant railroad tracks with the, you know, the things coming down on you. But actually, I was thinking this might actually give people more access to the lake because if you go out to East 55th or East 72nd, there are some really nice marinas there. The only way you can get to them literally is the shoreway. You can walk between East 55th and East 72nd. You can't drive between them. And then there's that whole giant area that used to be the dumping ground for the silt from the river that is now like a preserve that most people don't get get to. Um, It's not really easy to get to. And (laughs) I mean, we're talking pie in the sky, right? Like, I mean, who's just throwing millions of dollars around right now for public transit, but they want to move I-90 back into land more to free up more waterfront land. So we could have a big kind of like Edgewater East um, and make Gordon Park this kind of like I don't know, oasis on the east side. And if they did that, then then putting in a waterfront line that got people there would be really cool. And I'm sure young professionals and millennials would like it. But again, I mean, I can't imagine how much money that would cost. Yeah. And there's and just to put a line in so people can go to parks, I'm not sure that that's financially feasible. But I do. I If you look at the line that goes through Shaker and other places, it's not the easiest thing to cross. And so I mean, one of the chronic problems with the lakefront is we put so many barriers between people and the water that you that you can't get there. I don't see how adding a set of railroad tracks makes that easier. Maybe if you looped it around into downtown, it would provide more of a commuter thing because you could get to where you work, which you really can't now. I mean, unless you live close to, or work close to Tower City, it's not convenient. But there's also the question, is anybody ever going to work downtown again? We've all learned to work from home and we like it. So I'm not sure you're going to see a need for a commuter line. I, Chris, I hadn't even thought about the idea that the study might recommend shutting it down. That's a, that's interesting. Maybe that's the way to go because it is a colossal well, it, it's 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 that thing we talk about in, in transit, public transit all the time is that like, well, you know, public transit's job isn't to be a profit center for cities, it, you know, but but, you know, they have to be used, you know, I mean, yeah, this part, part of the point is that it, like it has to be used. And I think, you know, either what Laura was suggesting or, you know, think about like one of the, the best, the greatest transit systems in America, which is Chicago's, which, you know, is is useful you know, they have their, their, their train, several trains that go, that loop around the, the loop in downtown Chicago. And I think that that's kind of what might be the idea here, which is to, to have something that goes around and stops at various parts of downtown as well as the lakefront that, that would, that would actually be much more useful. But, but again, you know, it's, you know, budget, <laughs> budgets are being cut and, and, and RTA struggles financially as it is. And so, you know, this would require a massive injection of, of federal and, and state interest, which I just, you know, I mean, we, we were talking about education just a minute ago. You know, I, I don't see the will being there for the state right now, especially right. The, the way that the state legislature treats cities like Cleveland. Well, it'll be interesting to see which neighborhoods they destroy to extend that line. <laughs> that, that too. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
This is my favorite story of the day. Why did it take 42 years for Cleveland to fix its mistake and put the historical marker for the legendary football coach, John Heisman, in front of the right house? Lar Johnson, it's just staggering that they put the historical marker in front of the wrong house and left it there since 1978. What happened here? Well, it turns out there is a different way of numbering houses on streets since John Heisman was born in 1869. So they had this marker wrong for the last four decades. They also got his birth date wrong on the marker, and that's still wrong, but it's going to be fixed. So the correct residence is 3928 Bridge Avenue, not the house three blocks away at 2825 Bridge Avenue. And that is when dignitaries, including all sorts of former winners of the Heisman Trophy, gathered in 1978 to see this marker erected. Um, <laughs> I actually learned (laughs) wrong, totally wrong house, three blocks away. I actually learned a lot about Heisman just reading Bob Higgs' story. I didn't realize that he his first coaching job was at Oberlin, and both his or his teams beat both Ohio State and Michigan. Um, He coached all sorts of places, um, and and yeah, I mean, he was obviously inducted in the College Football Hall of Fame. He's got the big trophy named after him, so. Um, it's actually, it, it didn't take them 42 years to realize it was wrong. In the 80s, they, we started realizing it, but like nobody did anything about it. I guess this Why? resident named, I, I, I don't know. The resident named Faye Harris was very persistent in keeping this issue alive. And that's who Councilman Carrie McCormick credited to finally getting this marker in the right place. <laughs> what an embarrassing situation. I, I just don't understand why they wouldn't fix it. it it's just... It, it. <laughs> okay, well, enough said. They're fixing it. They're fixing You're it. Listening. And when they get the marker with the right birth date, because it's October 23rd, 1869, not October 3rd, they're going to have a public celebration, assuming it's coronavirus is over and we can gather safely. They're going to have a parade from the wrong place to the right place. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> that they got it right this time. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. We now have more details on what legislators are thinking about a lucrative first energy rate scheme built into the very corrupt House Bill 6. Jane Cahoon, what are the details? <laughs> well, I, I think lawmakers looked at the reality of what this particular provision does and Perhaps they're seeing, you know, what a big gift it was to, to First Energy. So they are actually uh, considering repealing this so-called decoupling provision. And that ensures a guaranteed level of income for First Energy and theoretically other utilities, although no other utility has successfully taken advantage of this. So this decoupling allows First Energy to charge ratepayers a total of $355 million more through 2024 to guarantee the company a yearly revenue of $978 million. That's the amount they raised in 2018, which was a year, you know, when they made more money than other recent years because of hot weather and other factors. So just to give you an idea of why First Energy likes this provision, Chuck Jones, the now-fired First Energy CEO, told investors during a call last year that, that House Bill 6 essentially takes about one third of our company, and I think makes it somewhat recession proof. So, uh, as I said, you can see why they wanted that. Maybe even more than the nuclear bailout that was that was part of that bill, which benefits a former subsidiary. So, th- this plan has in, been in place, but this new bill introduced Tuesday would terminate decoupling plans set up by HB six, 
and allow them to remain in force only as long as it takes for the PUCO to determine whether refunds are owed to customers. So um, one of the lawmakers on the, the committee that was studying HB6 to try to figure out what to do with it said, um, the deal given to First Energy, from what we've been able to gather, has been more lucrative than probably what should have been offered. So, um, but it, but as we talked about yesterday on this podcast, we'll we'll have to see what becomes of this bill as it as it makes its way through the lame duck to see if anybody tries to change it substantially. Well, a few things here. I mean, good for them for doing this. Shame on them for not doing it originally. This was all readily available information when they passed the damn bill, and not a one of them talked about it. But I also think this might answer the question I asked you earlier in the week about whether First Energy still has clout down there. I think the answer would be a big no. <laughs> Maybe legislators do realize they're radioactive and running away from them as their executive suit gets vacuumed out. It'll be We have not heard anything of late from the federal prosecutors and investigators on this case. And you keep wondering whether indictments are going to hit the leaders of First Energy who provided the money that, that built the racketeering scheme and some of the legislators that voted on it because there were calls being made. It'd be interesting to see when the next development is. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is there a push again to develop the Scranton Peninsula? Chris Ranowski, the last time I checked in on this, I thought this was done. The Great Lakes was going there. There's a bunch of development coming in. But then we have a story pop up that says, yeah, they're trying to figure out what to do with it. What happened? Well, I think I think there has nothing has ever been off the table. I think it's just it's I think it's taking there's a lot of unknowns, I think, in the in the market here that have have led to some hesitation in hurrying development in that part of, I guess it's not really technically the flats, but the, you know, the sort of flats adjacent property down there on the Cuyahoga river on the, on the West side of the river. And uh, Joe Roman with the uh, greater Cleveland partnership uh, told uh, reporter Eric Heising that, that he had started to reach out to the landowners of the, the 80 acres of property down there, um, and, and, and try to get them to sort of commit to, um, some kind of development and, and something that kind of makes sense. Uh, well, some of the landowners are Great Lakes Brewing Company owns part of it. You have Fred Geis, who is a big developer here, owns some of it. And then there was another group that was going to, uh, they were going to build like 300 apartments and townhomes down there, but that, that portion of it has been put on hold, if not scuttled permanently. You know, there, there's already some interesting stuff down there. I mean, you have, you know, things like Merwin's Wharf, which is owned by the Metro Parks. You have Collision Bend Breweries down there. You have the Foundry. You know, there's a lot of activity down there. But, you know, I used to live like right up the hill from there on uh, in Ohio City. And one of the things that is so, so kind of a bummer about that part of town is that there's really no foot traffic down there. And it's it's difficult to get around. There's no sidewalks in part of it. And so I think there's there's a there's a practical reason to develop it because it's just it's an unused part of land between two very popular parts of the city, which is the you know the nightlife part of Ohio City, and then that that western part of downtown where all the arenas and and the warehouse district are. So you know I it's it's useful. I just don't think anybody is in a hurry, and and I think that I, I think that is probably 
you know, those concerns are probably heightened by the the various unknowns that have been created by the virus and, and the, the future impact on the economy. So but I, I, I think there's you know, I think something will happen down there at some point. But, you know, whether it will be a, a, a satellite brewery for Great Lakes or, you know, 300 townhomes, you know, that remains to be seen. But but I imagine that that something will happen there because it's a great location. And, you know, the, the sight lines from there are, are really amazing, which is something Roman echoed in his, in his, his comments to Eric. So, so, you know, again, like I said with the RTA story, this is a lot of this is all wait and see at this point. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what the future holds. I always thought that that was the perfect place for an entertainment district, the waterfront area with spectacular views. Uh, it's just surprising that it's taken this long to develop it. It's a little hard to get to, but but not impossible. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Who knew that the guy who became a video sensation by mixing paint, but was fired by Sherwin Williams was a Northeast Ohio native Laura Johnston. Since I moved here in 96, I've been stunned at how many national and international stories have a Northeast Ohio tie. So we'd all heard about this guy. And then suddenly we find out he's from here. Yeah, he's from Medina. His name is Tony Pilicino. Uh, he was an Ohio University student while making viral videos, uh, studying marketing and working on the side at a Sherwin Williams, Williams store. Okay. I'd never been on TikTok before yesterday to see these videos. Um, he created them during slow times at work and while he was off the clock. And they're really cool. They're, they're kind of like mesmerizing and zen showing how paint gets mixed. And they were getting thousands of views. Then he shared news in a video from November 11th that got 32 million views that he said he was fired for gross misconduct because people were calling customer service at Sherwin Williams and asking if they could put blueberries in paint, which is something he did in his video. And you would have thought like he had pitched to Sherwin Williams that he was getting this great following. People were really interested in their paints, but Sherwin Williams, their marketing didn't want anything to do with it. So they, they fired him, which seems pretty short sighted and a really bad PR move. Well, a couple things. One, I, I, I'm not sure why you call these videos mesmerizing. I guess oh. I've mixed enough <laughs> of my own paint that it just is not that exciting to me. Two, what was Sherwin-Williams thinking? I mean, they have a guy who has made a international sensation of mixing paint, the heart and soul of their business, and they fire him. And now he's working. He's moving to Orlando to work for a different paint company. What right, a bad PR move. If you look at some of his newer videos, they've got like the Florida paints insignia on it. So he's like, you know, it's a commercial for them. I mean, he, he amassed thousands of followers. You're right. Okay. It's not quite as like, I said mesmerizing kind of zen. Like it's not like <laughs> watching paint dry, but it is interesting to see the colors. And yeah, I mean, it just, it makes no sense. What was, this is Chris Warnowski. What was, I mean, what was the explanation given to him for why they got rid of him? Like, is it that he, he was, was doing, doing it at work? He was doing, he was, he was doing something that he wasn't supposed to be doing on work time. Yeah. yeah I mean, the termination letter details three different kinds of misconduct that centers on the TikToks and said he's not eligible for rehire and get this, not permitted to enter any Sherwin Williams property. So I guess he can't go buy paint from there anymore. He, he, he probably stepped on somebody important's toes when this happened and he probably made somebody in marketing 
look really bad and and they didn't like that and and it's i know but 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 i think it i think this belies the fact that like a lot of companies you know i mean there's a lot of money that gets poured into like figuring out social media for brands and here you have a guy who you know he's like jed clampett he struck oil accidentally and and that offends people you know that that's that you know social media is somebody at that company's full-time job and here you have somebody you know, undermining it by being engaging and interesting. Not to undermining it. Not undermining it. Actually bringing attention to it. Look, yeah. this was one of the most serious public relations bungles. This will be in textbooks. You, yeah, I, I guarantee <laughs> college students in the future are going to marvel at the incompetent way Sherwin Williams dealt with this. It was just dumb. More credit to him. And but I, you know, but but you know, I mean, look, I I look, I've been at jobs where I've sat in meetings with people my age trying to figure out what young people want. And it's like, well, have you hired or talked to young people and asked them, you know, to come and do these yeah, jobs? This isn't that, though. This is a guy who hit it big by mixing paint while working at a Sherwin-Williams store. And their reaction was to say, you've committed gross misconduct. This isn't about age. This isn't no, about anything. No, but but the marketing of their product. They, they blew it. We got to move on. Okay. So this week in the CLE, why is the death rate from the coronavirus in Ohio worse than what the current numbers reflect? Jane Cahoon, this is another depressing story that your team has put together. I, I'm <laughs> a little bit worried about the, the mental state of the reporters on your team. They keep writing stories that depress me. What's the, what's the deal here? Yeah, I'm trying to hold it together, too. They, you know. <laughs> Anyway, the um, yeah, there there are a couple factors at work here. You know, we've watched really in horror as as both the new cases and hospitalizations spiked enormously through November, and and but those milestones are often reached weeks before we see the deaths uh, reported. So, and once a death does occur, it it routinely takes several days and and sometimes even weeks to be reported by the Ohio Department of Health. In the last week, we've had like a record number of 430 fatalities reported. And we had 123 deaths on Wednesday and 119 on Tuesday. Those were like the third and fourth highest single day totals to date. Yet, you know, close to half of those deaths that were reported on Tuesday occurred more than a week ago. Ten of them date back to October and one is even from September. So, you know, the health department says there are often delays in, in getting these cases confirmed because, for instance, somebody might have COVID, but also another condition and they die. And so the coroner is asked to review that and then they go back and, and revise the totals. So, as I said, we don't know what the death toll will be for this huge number of cases that were reported in November. That is still to come and you got to believe it's going to be bad. But if I plot it out, the the timing of this where what we're really thinking about is in the week right before christmas the, the the week that leads into christmas the christmas week we could be seeing numbers that we've never seen before that that will be scary and maybe just maybe that'll convince people not to travel like they did on thanksgiving it sounds like if rich is right we're going to see some some very frightening numbers about 10 days from now yeah i fear that Okay, something to look forward to. Yeah, You're, (laughs) You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's try and get one more done quickly. 
What do we know about the case of the Cuyahoga Falls woman who was kidnapped after her mom was killed? Chris Ronowski, this is a kind of big deal. Right. Uh, the FBI shot and killed a man by the name of James Edward Hawley down in Louisiana this week. Uh, he, he was uh, he was accused of killing a woman and then kidnapping her daughter. She was a Cuyahoga Falls woman. And uh, he shot her mother and then and then took off. And the FBI, Cuyahoga Falls Police and the Sheriff's Department in Belmont County and Wheeling, West Virginia, held a news conference Wednesday to sort of explain what happened. And they they basically found uh, this this nurse down in Louisiana, and and they the guy I guess they got into a shootout with this guy, and and now he's dead. But I, I mean, it's been you know it's been a long sort of touch and go week for this story because you know nobody nobody had seen this woman for a while, and and there were concerns that you know for her safety, but. You know, you know, unfortunately, this this ended with someone's death and we, you know, aren't going to get to see this guy in court and get justice that way. But, you know, fortunately, this woman is is OK and, and probably has a, a long road ahead, a long sort of traumatic road ahead for herself. Yeah, it's got to be terrifying. Your mother's killed. You're kidnapped at gunpoint, dragged all the way to Louisiana, and then you're kidnapped or shot to death by police. You're right. Yeah. I think she's going to be in for a long haul. OK, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. That's going to do it for our Thursday episode. We're going to have a lot to talk about on Friday, so be sure to come back. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast. 